This is Apotheosis, the second podcast from the crew at Code Punk, where we talk about cyberspace, cyberculture, and cyberpunk. You can go to codepunk.io to read our articles and also check out our other podcast, the self-titled Code Punk Podcast, hosted by myself and co-host Bill Ahern. You can also find that podcast in your favorite podcast application, as well as on YouTube, since all recent episodes are recorded in virtual reality. Although the history of Boing Boing paints a picture of geek chic with a thriving community and an almost playful cyber indulgence, the blog and those running the blog, it's not without the occasional head-turning controversy. And some of this controversy directly correlates with the declining perception of the blog in its current quasi-lackluster state. Every discussion revolving around expression on the internet will undoubtedly dovetail into a discussion about censorship and when or if censorship is a good thing. And you'll you'll certainly run into the comic book version of Karl Popper's intolerance paradox if the discussion revolves around political discourse and tolerance. You saw this during the January 6th insurrection. You saw this during Unite Right in Charlottesville. Most message boards have moderators, and these moderators wield enormous power over the prospects of communication. When I used to run a group blog, an internet forum called Key23, I was one of several founders tied to the initial launch. But I was the primary, and by primary I mean only, technical resource on it. My servers, my software, my blood, sweat, and definitely tears. I certainly can't say that running Key23 went smoothly. When running an internet forum for free, there are a lot of expectations thrown at you by the users. And you put out a lot of effort based on those expectations, but one wrong turn and you're suddenly the villain. At one point, there was an open thread of comments that people were threading together as kind of like a full story, a narrative. Somebody added a part out of turn. It made the story disjointed and kind of weird. It it skewed it a bit. As a person who likes consistency, I edited the narrative to align it better with the full story. That single edit became a fire drill of controversy, and despite the fact that I was single-handedly managing the operation on my own dime, such effort provided zero leeway when it came to editorial initiative. I mention this because at the same time, Boing Boing also received criticism over censorship in the form of comment edits. Despite often being considered critical of online censorship, Boing Boing has been attacked for censoring via disemvowing, the practice of removing the vowels from comments that were deemed inappropriate. This practice might seem like a game, but as a site that prides itself on being a supporter of internet freedom, is the practice really okay? Since I was someone who formerly ran an online forum, I can definitely sympathize with both sides here but I can also see the controversy. Disemvowing has made its way through multiple versions of the Boing Boing community, meaning different message board software that's been installed, and even led to Jeff Atwood chiming in on why it's not something preferred for his discourse. He mentions that, in a way, you're kind of mocking the person. Also, in a way, it's kind of like a reward for failure. And at the same time, it's often complicated for the rules of software. If you read the online version of this podcast episode, it goes into more details as far as Jeff Atwood's comments. A much larger boing-boing controversy came from the treatment of sex blogger Violet Blue. 
After being a contributor to Boing Boing, one day all of her posts were deleted without explanation. Blue posted about the controversy on her own blog, and the Los Angeles Times even commented on the noted silence from the so-called Directory of Wonderful Things. Eventually, Boing Boing did release a statement, and they said, Bottom line is that those posts, not more than 100 posts as erroneously claimed elsewhere, were removed from public view a year ago. Violet behaved in a way that made us reconsider whether we wanted to lend her any credibility or associate with her. It's our blog, and so we made an editorial decision, like we do every single day. We didn't attempt to silence Violet. We unpublished our own work. There's a big difference between that and censorship. They went on to say, clearly, that didn't work out. In an attempt to diffuse drama, we inadvertently ignited more. Mind you, we weren't the ones splashing gasoline around, but we did make the first fire possible. We're sorry about that. In the meantime, Boing Boing's past content is indexed on the Wayback Machine, a basic internet resource, so the material should still be available for those who would like to read it. Now, this was probably too little, too late, and David Peskovitz, meanwhile, completely either misinterpreted or misrepresented the point of Boing Boing readers entirely when he said... What would happen if Boing Boing decided we're just going to shut down? I don't mean today. Maybe in 20 years, we're all broken bankrupt. We can't afford to host. No one likes us. No one reads our stuff. And we take down the entire thing. Are we then the ultimate censor? Now, of course, that is a bit hyperbolic. It misses the point. It's a little misrepresentative of what readers thought. And if Boing Boing keeps it up, they might actually disappear or get everybody to dislike them, as the downward trend seems to suggest. Jordan herself dug the hole even deeper by suggesting that despite many on-staff being journalists concerned with ethics, privacy, and censorship, Boing Boing didn't need to adhere to journalistic standards. She's quoted as saying, There's a big difference between working for National Public Radio, producing something that is a new piece for that outlet, and writing for Boing Boing. They are two entirely different kinds of entities, even though they have really big footprints culturally. Boing Boing is not trying to be CNN or NPR or the Library of Congress. Cory Doctorow now, in an unrelated instance, did mention how he believed that Boing Boing was a personal blog with multiple people and should be treated as such, so this is a perception that many of the editors at Boing Boing had. There has consistently been rumors circulating about the why of this situation, and when you leave actions open to interpretation, you do end up getting down to baser speculation and rumor. Gawker writer Owen Thomas quotes yet another Gawker property, Ballywag, about how all signs point to the foundering of a once romantic friendship between Boing Boing editor Jenny Jardin and Violet Blue. Now, Owen continues to speculate by saying that we've come to believe the friendship always had a mercenary angle. Jardin could get her linked as well as laid. The association with Boing Boing boosted Blue's career. How painful it must have been for Jardin to realize she was being used by a groupie who wanted to join her band. And people in pain exercise supremely bad judgment, which is what Jardine did when she unpublished posts about Blue from Boing Boing. Now, without putting too much stock in the stories of a lover's tryst, Violet Blue is not a person without her own controversial baggage. And although I shudder to use Gawker publications as a source... There are documented rumors of a blogger journalist Melissa Gira Grant turning down Blue's advances. Some accuse Blue of using sex blogger connections and interpersonal relationships to get ahead in journalism. 
Should Grant be believed? Oddly enough, Melissa Gira Grant was a former Key 23 contributor, so I certainly find such comments credible coming from her. However, Grant herself was in a bit of a controversial confrontation with another former Key 23 contributor, Rachel Haywire, just a few short years ago. What does all of this mean other than don't believe everything you read on the internet? I guess it simply means that people disagree, people get into arguments, sometimes people are terrible to each other. And when these people live a semi-public life online, it spills over into the collective mindshare of readers on blogs. It's impossible to know the whole story based on the loose information available, and the fact that it's being kept mostly private means that it likely is a private matter. None of us should care about who is sleeping with whom, it's none of our business. But what about the censorship? Boing Boing's problem isn't that two people associated with the blog are on the outs with each other. That's a distraction. Boing Boing's problem is that they elected to unpublish someone and scrub the site of that person's name without even a footnote on why. When they later decided to address it, it came down to our blog, our decisions. And that certainly never works out for people who run internet forums, and I know that firsthand. Unpublishing is a problem because it's silencing a voice after the fact. More recently, with the departure of Cory Doctorow, readers noticed how references to the writer have been removed from the blog in a similar silent matter, causing many to wonder about the reason for Doctorow's departure and the treatment of his name and work on the blog that he helped build. Although neither party has spoken about the issue in detail, rumors that the schism is related to Boing Boing's use of affiliate links and marketing in new and creative ways, while Dr. Rowe is more interested in fighting the good fight on activism. Honestly, I've never been a big reader or a fan of Boing Boing, even in its prime. And that certainly could be coloring my thoughts on these so-called controversies and how I feel about Boing Boing's decline. But that doesn't mean Boing Boing isn't a quality part of internet history.